Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by about five feet and a blue mic Yeti microphone. Talking cloud, dinosaurs, mega peanut M&Ms, and technology. I'm Dan Usher, and this is episode 23, recorded on 9 July 2015. So Scott, what's the beverage of the night? Old Bay Summer Ale. So does it have Old Bay like seasoning sprinkled into it? A little bit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when you take Old Bay and you put a little bit of water in there, you boil it up, and then you throw potatoes in. Yeah, what are these things you call potatoes? Potatoes. Uh, cauliflower. Got it. Tomato. Tomato. Mm. So what do we have on tap for today? Mm. More of the same usual stuff and i have some topical subjects Ooh, topical subjects what do you have going on today in the show notes Ooh, show notes we have show notes scott where do we find those uh you find those at the pub so pub.brewery.fm and then slash brewery and the episode number so this would be episode 23 so pub.brewery.fm slash brewery zero two three i think i can almost uh learn how to do that Mm. Yeah, it's, it's difficult stuff, but if not, you can always go to the website at brewery.fm or mm, hit us up on Twitter or the Book of Faces, all, the, all those fun things. Mm. We're, we're, very, uh, we're very savvy when it comes to social media. Fair enough. Uh, so follow-up for this week. Uh, we got two core things, and actually, I guess, uh, Windows 10 hit, uh, I guess, not really a milestone, but they're hoping to RTM this week, I guess? Yep, so they should be sealing builds off and uh, getting ready to at least start slicing uh, Goldmasters GMs uh, for OEMs to start baking into devices and things like that, because not everybody is going to be upgrading over the internet. So I think it's 101.62 or, or whatever the latest and greatest build is that breaks a bunch of stuff along the way. You know, it, it seems like at this point, just from the people that I follow on Twitter, uh, the folks inside Microsoft are having a really easy time upgrading and everything's just working. Uh, and people on devices, first-party devices like Surfaces, tend to do pretty good, at least on the Surface Pro 3. If you're on anything else like my experience has been it's not great like the latest build broke the store uh so we've been in this weird state where we have two stores we have the beta store and then the not beta store so basically the green and the gray tile and the green tile is completely broken and in the past this happened pretty much every time doing a a build build upgrade uh something would go away. So whether that was like people or mail or calendars or something like that. And usually you could go in with some PowerShell and do some Git Apex package and look for the package with the right name and then remove it forcefully and then go to the store and download it again. Uh, But it turns out you can't remove the green store, or at least I can't find a way to do it. I'd love to know if there was a way. And so now I'm stuck with the gray store, which doesn't have everything. The green store, which has some things, which I can't open uh, you know, it's it's kind of uh, a bit of a mess. And I, I pity folks that upgrade and get caught in this weird state with the current betas and 
fast rings and slow rings and all the other things. Sounds like you've gone to the circus, Scott. I know for me, uh, I loaded uh, Windows 10 onto a device that uh, I guess I got in a trade with someone else. Uh, I guess, um, you know, it, it's decent device, but I've been running the updates on it. I don't use it for too much other than, you know, checking mail, doing a little internet browsing, wondering where my cheese got moved to. Because um, there's definitely moments where, you know, suddenly things change in those fast ring builds. I think it was going from uh, whatever it was to 158, maybe. Might have been 158. Um, where all of a sudden the behavior of the start button all of a sudden just changed. So uh, if you'd been using the earlier builds, the start menu that we are so lovingly in love with uh, from Windows 7, Windows XP, Windows Me, um, suddenly changed back to kind of the start screen that Windows 8 had uh, was one of those that I was kind of going, wait, what, what happened here? Why did this suddenly change? Obviously, if you go back into the settings, you can change that and tell it, no, no, I actually do want it to be just kind of a start button menu instead of uh, the Windows 8 uh, pop-up. And I think they probably have changed that back since then. Uh, probably from a feedback aspect, folks were going, uh, wait, no, this isn't the start button that we want. Yeah, it depends on the device you're on. So I have Windows 10 loaded up on that little DV8, and it, it makes some interesting choices based on what settings that are available in the OS. So uh, like the DV8 loves to boot into tablet mode, which is excellent. Like that is a perfectly valid choice. Love it. Everything comes up full screen. You know, it's an 8-inch screen, so it, it probably makes sense to really only have one app at a time and things like that. Um, but then there's another setting that you can go in and change and tweak, which says, hey, uh, go ahead and make everything a touch-friendly tap target. So you would think if I'm in tablet mode, that would already exist, but it doesn't exist unless you go and turn it on. So mm, some behavioral inconsistencies and other things that hopefully get fixed in the next week or so before they cut and push this out, because I can see a lot of folks upgrading and having a little bit of that who moved my cheese, actually quite a bit of it, right? Windows 10 brings a lot to the table and it's going to be pretty confusing for folks that are coming up from a straight Windows 7 world and they've skipped 8 or 8.1 and they're not used to those kind of things. It's going to be a bit of a sea change for them. Uh, so hopefully they get some of that stuff ironed out before GM this week or next or whenever that actually happens. And then, you know, we should continue to see regular releases foreseeably for, for the, the near and long-term future. Um, you know, the insider program is sticking around. We, we, we talked about this a little bit. So uh, now there's actually an option in the settings that says, hey, keep me on the insider builds and let's keep rolling and chugging along on that. Yeah, so speaking of uh, those builds, though, <clears throat> I'm curious... For folks that are at home and they just want to, once they get to RTM, they just want to, I don't know, put the brake on, the e-brake on and slow down. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not really going to have a choice going forward. They're still going to get updates pushed to them through this this new model of how updates are pushed as a consumer, right? I mean, it's not, uh, once you hit RTM... Um, I guess if you had that Windows 7 or Windows 8 or Windows XP license, or is it XP? I, I don't know. Uh, if you had that actual real deal McCoy um, license, 
you obviously get the full up Windows 10 RTM, but you're still at some point going to get these builds pushed to you as updates and you're not really going to have too much control as to how quickly you get them. Well, you have you have basically three levels. So you have uh, you have the fast ring and the slow ring. So, so you do have control over that and what goes into that. And you also have the ability when you go into Windows Update to go ahead and view the details and, and see what's going to come in that particular update before you install it. At some point, you'll have to eventually let it push through. Uh, but you, you do get some kind of passes and deferments to push things off and wait a little bit if you want to, as long as you're conscious of what it's doing in the background. So those are the two kind of built-in main modes, right? Fast ring, slow ring. The third thing that gets thrown in is if you are a Windows Insider and you're part of that program, there's an additional button in there that says, keep me in the Windows Insider program, or basically really the equivalent is once you're signed in with that account, it's uh, I want to leave the Windows Insider program and just go back to regular slow ring and regular fast ring. Uh, but if you're in the Insider program, you'll be getting Insider builds, which will be accelerated over regular public builds. So uh, a couple different ways to get through there and, and make things work. So in comparison to the way that Apple does their stuff, uh, I guess you know these builds will be akin to what the Apple development community has had for the past couple of years, where the developer builds come out, I don't know, Weekly, bi-weekly, tri-weekly. Uh, but, you know, having builds at a more often rate than what you have uh, in the regular betas that they put out. So, well, you're, really you're talking RTM updates, basically, versus beta updates. So it's bananas so, and battleships. Yes, yes. In, in your terminology and whatever strange planet you live on, yes. Bananas and battleships. But there's always money in the banana stand. True. So that you know, we, we got that. Hmm. So yeah, I guess that uh, it's a very poor segue. But uh, Windows or not Windows, uh, Apple. For those of you like Mark Rackley that have recently picked up an Apple device and have located the power button and booted it up and gone, what the heck is this OS X thing? Um, you know, I think uh, for folks that are interested. Uh, I guess they announced that the iOS Beta 3 and uh, I guess OS X Beta 3 of El Capitan and iOS 9 uh, hit the streets today. Um, I, I personally, am, while I do have an Apple developer account, I'm probably not going to load these on, at least not until they get like uh, somewhere along the path of when Beta 1 public build comes out. Um, just because Apple tends to put out very broken beta bits. Uh, at least I don't know if you've been using the Microsoft stuff, but Microsoft puts out some broken beta bits as well. Well, yeah. I mean, once Windows 11 comes out, it'll all be yeah. good. So, so part of this is managing expectations, right? Whether it's Microsoft or Apple or any, anybody else. Pick your favorite software vendor. Uh, at some point, we've all adopted this thought in our heads that beta means stable and beta doesn't mean stable. Beta means beta and things are going to be broken and we're going to have to live with that. So kind of like in Windows land where we had, uh, you know, like when Windows 10 finally drops in RTMs, we're going to have the RTM builds and then the insider builds. So in Apple land, we've got RTM builds, 
we've got developer builds, and then we've got public betas. So they, they have a little extra layer in there depending on what's going on and what they've released and, and pushed out and made available to everybody. So we mentioned this last week about Siri and her snarkiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just don't say hey before you say, mm. yeah, the word. Hey, Siri, tell me a joke. I don't think you'd understand a joke in my language. They're not so funny, anyway. Yeah, it's pretty lame. All right, so moving on. Yeah, not as bad as Alexa, but you're pushing tonight. It's 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 nice to see you try. Well, you know. Uh, speaking of people trying, uh, interestingly enough, Lego Company has realized that uh, they can't continue making all of their Lego pieces uh, out of oil-based plastics. Um, apparently, Lego has been doing this forever. Uh, But their hope is by 2030 to actually have something that is a little bit more sustainable, um, reduces the environmental footprint impact. Um, It's interesting. They went and they did an analysis and they said, you know what? We have a huge CO2 footprint um, and it all seems to come from the harvesting of raw materials in our factories. So... um, this article, uh, for those of you that are following along in the show notes, um, you know, basically it's just uh, interesting that Lego realizes, hey, they need to actually do something about this. Um, they said they were going to put down a billion in, uh, I guess, Danish crones, uh, which is about the equivalent of 150 million U.S. dollars or 200 million dollars Australian. Mm, sounds good. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about it, though, is just... Uh, you could buy, like, one house in Sydney with $200 million. Wow. Yeah. Is that, or, of, is that made of Legos, though? It better be for $200 million. <laughs> um, But, yeah, so $200 million for... Uh, or $200 million Australian to uh, help find a more sustainable source of Lego pieces. Um, you know, I think the only thing that we're really going to find to make these things sustainable is to perhaps make them on, I don't know, an asteroid or a comet and harvest all of the plastics there. No, this is all about saving the dinosaurs, Dan. Okay. Well, I mean, we got to save the dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. Dinosaur conservation is a, a good thing. But uh, some other fun stuff with Legos. Uh, you're familiar with that movie uh, by Tolkien, right? Nope. No? Nope. I only watch Star Wars. Uh, well, uh... Some dude, Brendan M., uh, decided to build a Lego Tower of Orthnac. Um, yeah, he made it out of 75,000 pieces, and it's on a 1 to 65 scale. Uh, pretty wild, if you think about it. Um, I put together an R2-D2, and it took, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks, just because I didn't have dedicated time, and it was about 2,000 pieces. So this guy spent a little over a year uh, putting these pieces together, I can only imagine that uh, his family probably thought he was somewhat deranged and strange. Yeah, if anybody's into Lego, they should very much check out a brick show if they have one that comes through town by them and go see what the creative folks who like Lego's products um, actually go ahead and and build. When I went to the brick show before we left Sydney, there was a guy there who uh, was making Lego Transformers which is something like Lego themselves don't do. So he actually had uh, little kits that he was kind of putting together with the pieces independently that could 
transform from a car into a robot and, and things like that back and forth. I like to more, a little more blocky, kind of like GoBots than Transformers, but I, I gave them a pass because it was very creative. Uh, but you can always go out and see things like that. And there are people who build these massive, um, you know, way more than 75,000 piece things. You're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of Lego pieces in the same building at the same time. Uh, massive dioramas and things like that. Yeah, so I think in the Northern Virginia area, there's something called Brick Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do that at one of the convention centers up here. Yeah, so August 1st and 2nd at the Dulles Expo Center on Chantilly. Uh, if you get a chance, definitely check it out. I know Joel Ward will probably be there. Um, so you have any favorite uh, Dilbert comics that just you know resonate with you? No. I'm getting ready to like talk about Office 365 or Azure. Ah, man, you're killing me. Uh, probably the same way, but, um, you know, kind of, kind of working our way over to office 365, a lot of the time for me, um, working different organizations and whatnot. Uh, it always cracks me up when, you know, someone comes in and they ask a question, well, how do I fix this? And, you know, I might say, well, maybe you could use Azure media services, or you could use AWS as media services, or you could use an Azure website or something like that. Um, and they turn around and, you know, they basically come back and they say, well, let's, uh, let's build this in an Excel spreadsheet. So there's a Dilbert out there. Uh, we have it in the show notes. And basically, pointy hair finishes things off with, let's pie chart this thing. So pie charts, they always win. Mm-hmm. You can pie chart anything. That's true. As long as you have a JavaScript library for it. Yep. But, uh, so Office 365, what's something cool going on there today? So th- there's some stuff that happened last month that we never really talked about. Mm. Uh, Didn't get purged. Mm. Conveniently, because it's kind of important. Uh, I-, I only purged the unimportant stuff from the show notes. So uh, Compliance Search was released or announced last month, uh, which basically gives you e-discovery light or a lot of the... Uh, well, it's called Compliance Search, right? So it's giving you a lot of the e-discovery search features that are native to Office 365, uh, which are really, really cool. If nobody set them up, they're, they're kind of a pain to set up on-prem and get right the first time. Uh, but they're all done for you in Office 365, so there's really no reason not to use them as long as you're in a SKU that has access to those things. So Compliance Search lets you do... a bunch of things based on the way that the search system is set up. So it lets you search across all of your SPO sites and all of your mailboxes. So that includes like attachments and mailboxes or documents and lists and libraries and everything else. Uh, you can actually use KQL. So, so the keyword query language, if you want to get like really advanced with your searches and things like that, uh, because it's using SharePoint search and that new, uh, fast, not fast stuff. It does things like hit highlighting and all that fun stuff. Uh, and you can also go and tweak some permissions and do some things to control uh, what can be searched and, and who can search for it and what they can do across that. So I, I know one of the big areas that I run into with folks, uh, and I imagine you do too, is conversations around things like OneDrive for Business. So with the uh, maybe poor guidance from Microsoft over time about uh, how and where you know sites should be created and what's going to happen and maybe groups alleviate some of that but 
over time, you know, they've been saying, hey, here's OneDrive for business, and you get your uh, effectively terabyte to unlimited data store. So let's go ahead and give that to users, and all of a sudden we've got users all over the organization. Uh, you know, they're not paying attention to policies, procedures, governance, things that have been put in place to say, uh, hey, you know, maybe if it's a shared project or something, it should really go over here uh, in the internet or in, in a more shared, appropriate place. So, uh, you know, I look at tooling like this as being something that we can have as a uh, another one of those uh, mechanisms to let us figure out what's going on within our Office 365 tenancies. It's always nice. Uh, so this lets us be... Uh, a little bit more proactive if we want to go out and kind of have this admin duty to go out and execute searches and just see what's out there. So, uh, you know, if we want to set up a particular search around some kind of uh, audit for mm, social security numbers, whatever it might be, uh, it really doesn't matter what the, what the data is as long as you have a query for it and you save it. So we can be proactive in that somebody can go uh, and execute those searches and then we can also be a little bit more reactive in that, you know, once they figure out what's out there, we can put some policies and procedures in place so that they can communicate users to users and educate them about what needs to happen along the way. Mind blown? Just a little bit. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people actually, they overlook this. I think they, they don't realize that uh, the compliance search is there. Um, but I think also by having uh, Office 365 as this you know, development platform, not really even a development platform, but uh, a platform that Microsoft's continually doing revs on, um, I think it actually adds to the chaos in some regard because when you introduce things like groups, uh, I'm willing to bet that things like compliance search may or may not actually be picking them up right off the bat. Uh, you know, I, I don't have too many tendencies with groups in place or at least groups being used in the way that Microsoft has demonstrated them at, at keynotes and conferences and things like that. So haven't had a chance to play with it. Uh, really, the big thing I like about this is that it's already there. So if anybody's ever gone through and configured eDiscovery... Um, and even eDiscovery in Office 365, so the back-end pieces are always tied in for you. So you've always got the... Uh, the search things, and but you've got to build out the uh, the discovery center and set your cases and your queries and everything else. So the nice thing about compliance search is there's none of that overhead of having to do the upfront configuration of, uh, all right, I need to go to the e-discovery center and I need to go ahead and build out an e-discovery case and now my e-discovery case has these different components to it, and here's the bits and pieces that I want to search for. So this is quite literally, let's go to compliance search, let's create a new search, here's my criteria, right? Like, where do you want to look? Do you want to look at every mailbox or just a couple of specific ones? Do you want to look at all sites or just some specific sites? And that's about it. Go ahead and enter your query term, you know, and again, that's KQL, so you can get really specific. Like, uh, you can show you know, show me sensitive data types like credit card numbers or social security numbers, uh, or you can even do things like bank account numbers. You know, if you're in finance and want to make sure that people aren't putting those things out there and you create a search and go, you just hit a button. And because everything's based on the indexes that already exist within 
uh, Office 365 search services, you're going to get instant results. So that's really nice to have that data available and to be able to see. And they're going to add some things over that to that over time. So like today, you can't export those results. Um, you can't automatically go ahead and create uh, uh, one of those e-discovery cases and, and push things over. Um, but eventually, the, you know, those things are on the roadmap and they, they want to get them in there. So I guess, I mean, it's a good point that you make uh, the compliance search is definitely different than the e-discovery search. I think a lot of people probably intermingle the two and don't realize that they're separate things. Well, they're based on the same technology, right? Which is the underlying search index. Yep. That, that, that's it. So there is this thing called search in Office 365. So if you want to think of it as SharePoint search or whatever, it's search, right? And, and they both use exactly the same mechanisms, uh, but it's a different driver and a different front end to get there. And based on the way the roadmap is set up, eventually compliance might become a little bit of an easier feeder for search uh, or for e-discovery, just to be able to go ahead and create those cases a little bit easier up front, right? That's one of the things on the roadmap is once I've created a compliance center search, let's go ahead and have the ability to actually execute a uh, a hold against things. So if they keep that in the same method that exists today, a hold implies we have a case, and then our case has our kind of search criteria and what's going on inside of it. So hopefully all those things just poured over really nicely. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's not meant to be a, um, a, a legal control mechanism, like you said. It's meant to be a, uh, a, a governance or like a document control mechanism, right? It's, it's going to be premeditated on the part of your admins and everything to get in there versus holds, which are going to be, you're, you're going to have some legal reason to use those yeah. or some, or you're really looking for uh, like a regulatory thing. Like you got sued and Hey, we need to go ahead and put a hold on those things. Yep. So I think uh, probably the compliance stuff though, uh, probably, you know, the, like you mentioned, if you're trying to find social security numbers, credit card numbers, things along those lines, I could see this coming in really handy if you were trying to go through and scrub your SharePoint online system for PII or something like that where you know search terms. But again, you're not necessarily trying to go down the path of you know getting anybody in trouble. Not saying that e-discovery is all about people getting in trouble, but you know, just typically, you know, if there's a if there's a legal handling where e-discovery is involved and it creates those lockdown versions of things. Um, yeah, but I can see Compliance Center also coming in handy for a couple other use cases, more around uh, almost not even compliance, just you know trying to figure out uh, how often users are putting certain information into documents maybe, which I guess you could say is compliance because you're seeing if they comply with standards maybe. Yeah, well, one of the really nice things about compliance search is that it is going to search across more than just your standard out-of-the-box SPO search is doing, right? It's going across your mailboxes and your sites, and it's doing that with privileged accounts that kind of have rights to go and pull things and then trim that index down to based on who's executing the search. So you're really going to get a little bit more insight with just this out-of-the-box tooling, right? So it's another tool in the toolbox, something to keep in mind that it's out there uh, and it's available and should definitely be utilized.
I may go utilize it uh, tomorrow. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm... See, it's good we cover these things. It is. That's why I didn't delete that one. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you didn't delete that. And I don't know if we talked about it uh, previously, but Office 365 video. Did we uh, did we talk about the update last week? No, but it's still broken. But okay, yeah. Uh, so apparently you can now uh, embed Office 365 video por- outside of the video portal, uh, which I thought was pretty snazzy. Like you've got kind of the have you used video that much Mm -hmm. so it's it's a weird thing i mean the video portal is essentially uh search driven so it's cross-site publishing catalog of some sort um but then you actually have a site that holds the video but the site is fairly broken because the permissions on it are not really what they should be well videos aren't even actually being stored there they're being stored back in azure in a storage account well, they're being stored in a media services account. <laughs> Which uses a storage account in the back end. E- e- yes, but... It's, it's a special snowflake. But it's in a tenancy that you don't control. Well, details. So it, it's one of those mass services, right? This is one of those new portal experiences. So so video is kind of the first one to come along. And we know that there's other things coming along, like Infopedia and knowledge management portals and all those other kind of fun things. But uh, Office 365 video is definitely a special snowflake, like you said. It's, it's got some mm, idiosyncrasies to it that can often drive you to madness. So, uh, you know, if you're trying to upload a video and that video upload fails, uh, good luck trying to figure out what happened with it because you don't own the media services account behind it or, or you can't actually see what's happening and uh, good luck up- uploading more than one video at a time or doing it over a spotty connection and then maybe you want to try and delete a video but you don't know where the video actually let's just say the video portal has some issues as it exists today yeah, yeah i think it's just so having toyed around with it um I think this is cool that you can actually have videos embedded in other places inside SharePoint instead of just the two places that you have it right now. So if you had a portal that you were building inside SharePoint and wanted to have a video cross-linked across the portal, uh, you could actually do that. Now, the caveat is is you're still going to run into that lovely issue that if you have black, uh, like a black page or a blue page or a white page or you have some color or you've got like the beginning of a video at the very, very beginning, so it's not like a, a splash screen of some sort. Um, you still end up with that as your your splash image, your JPEG image, which is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. For now, I mean, so, so at some point they'll y- change y- that. You think that's really cool, but I mean, this is something that Azure Media Services had for a while, right? When we upload and publish content in Azure Media Services, we actually get the ability to publish it out through the player, and we can really like share it wherever we want to. So there are solutions that have existed in Office 365 or on-premises to actually go ahead and create these portals long before Microsoft came and did it. And I, having done Azure work and integrations like this in the past, I kind of look at something like the video portal as um, whoever, whoever within the product group is responsible for that. Uh, they built. It, it's a case of somebody building some tooling without understanding the underlying system that they built on top of, right? So there's a lot of basic functionality that's built into media services in Azure that would have been super easy to expose 
and make a lot more transparent that was just hidden away uh, for whatever reason, like time, money, who, who knows. Um, but they, they could have made it a little bit better, a little more friendly. Uh, and But they've been going this way with Office 365 for... Uh, for for a bunch of things now, you know, like let's let's hide it away and push things into you, things like Azure tenancies that you you might not control or, or other Azure subscriptions that you you really don't know exist and uh, aren't there. So but I, I often get the sense that some of this stuff is built by people that um, they, they definitely understand the front end, right? Like like they get SharePoint and what needs to go into the development on that side. But then all of a sudden they're tasked with, hey, uh, go build us a portal that stores videos in Azure Media Services. And then they don't sit down and talk to anybody in Azure Media Services and figure out how that works, which is why then you end up with this other stuff coming in on the back end months and months and months later. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, my frustration is more the usability side of it for end users. Um, mostly in kind of what I was talking about with uh, if you post a video up there, it takes, I believe, like whatever zero 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 is um, from the timestamp. <laughs> you can't go in and select uh, a, a timestamp in your video that's maybe a second or two in. It's like a splash screen to show up as your JPEG thumbnail uh, of the video yet. Um, it, it's just kind of one of those niceties that you'll see with like Vimeo or some other, you know, YouTube or something like that, where you can actually choose yep. uh, what your splash screen image thumbnails. Again, be. driven by media services, you can't do that in media services. So you're yeah. asking for functionality that's not there. I, I'm willing to bet that if we went on user voice, we could uh, <laughs> we could convince them to do that. Maybe you could. You, you got that user community poll, but well, we shall see. <laughs> You make that happen. All right. I will make that happen by next week. There we go. Okay. You heard it here. Um, so next up. Uh, uh, so there's this article out here that, uh, what's her name? Marge Palmer, a PFE, Premier Field Engineer, for those of you that uh, don't know Microsoft Lingo, um, wrote kind of a blog article that is a summary of a Microsoft support article, um, which I don't know, maybe it's a little overkill, but um, she kind of put together a grouping of information about best practices for authorizing user access to SharePoint sites using SharePoint groups, permissions, and explaining inheritance. Um, She basically took bullets from the support article and reposted them into her blog uh, which is good. I mean, this is a topic that comes up fairly often that most folks still don't quite understand that they could probably do better to know better. Um, and you know, the number one thing that, uh, typically comes up is, uh, at least for me is when someone says, Hey, uh, somebody has access to my documents. I don't know why they have access to my documents. And we say, well, it's probably a permissions issue. And they say, well, that's not how my file share works. And it's, you know, one of those conversations of, well, you're kind of right. You're kind of wrong. Um, your file share probably does react that way. You just uh, have an automatic default inherited permission on it. And in the same way, SharePoint does that. But guess what? You have these other people in there that it's inheriting the permission from. So uh, she goes into a little bit of depth of you know some of the things that you want to consider, do while you are planning your permissions inheritance. Um, and it's applicable for SharePoint on-prem. It's applicable for, excuse me, on-premises, uh, as well as Office 365 SharePoint Online. But... 
Uh, it doesn't really seem to take into account claims at all. Um, and also, it talks about SharePoint Online, but it does not necessarily talk about uh, SharePoint groups. It talks about Office 365 security groups um, being used instead of like AD groups if you're doing uh, Dersync or if you don't have Dersync running and you've just got uh, cloud identities in a non-federated state or a non-Dersync state um, using that. Uh, fairly interesting article. The support article itself kind of goes into a lot more depth of strategies you should probably pursue um, in figuring out your permissions model for application to SharePoint sites. Uh, I know for me, this is also kind of a big thing because if you are working uh, with a client or a customer and they go down the the uh, they, they go take the red pill and they think to themselves, oh, this is going to be grand. We're going to build everything inside a single site collection. Um, and they suddenly realize the pain of permissions management when they start branching out below that site collection and trying to you know, lock things down, batten down the hatches. It just seems to be a, a fairly painful thing to learn. Um, sometimes it's not always the greatest idea to have everything clumped up in one site collection. Uh, especially when you aren't necessarily planning out your permissions model uh, quite as granularly, or uh, you just don't have a plan for permissions model. So uh, definitely a good read for anybody that's going in to work with a, a group. Um, the uh, the one thing that has not changed in all of this is still kind of the, the recommendation to uh, use Active Directory groups, so security groups, not distribution lists, um, as your kind of your uh, your encapsulator um, for your user objects just because it's going to be a lot uh, it's leaner on the system um, from a security scopes perspective uh, as well as from the security principles aspect of having to go through and enumerate all these different users when it can just go look at the SID, look and say, oh, look, it's part of that group. That group is part of this other SharePoint membership role. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's tough when folks don't plan these things out. So uh, you, you have to have some balance there, right? So saying things like blanket statements, like thou shalt use AD groups and then embed them in SharePoint groups. Um, it sounds really great off the cuff until you run a SharePoint deployment for a couple of months or a year or whatever. And then you realize that you've locked all your group creation down to your AD admins and you've taken away some flexibility. And now somebody needs access to a site and they've got to wait to be added to a group or a new site is created and then somebody created an AD group and it still only has one user in it and it exists with one user in it for perpetuity. Uh, so you've got to have some rules and uh, really some upfront thought that goes into the design of these things, right? Um, I Some of the, some of the guidance that's, that's out there today kind of flies in the face of the way Microsoft is going. So it's really interesting to go see articles like that, which talk about things like, hey, let's always use the principle of uh, least privilege user access. And then it comes back and you look at something like Office 365 Groups or OneDrive for Business with you know uh, what used to be and has been taken away, shared for everyone folder. Um, there's really some contradictory things to the way the systems are designed uh, versus the way we're supposed to guide people to use them. So it, it, it'd be nice to see them offer some clarity or some other things around that. 
Um, and, and there are ways to get around some of this stuff too, right? So you can get around that like group with one user problem. So if you use something like Office 365 and you have Azure Active Directory Premium, that then you have access to dynamic groups. So, you know, we've talked about this in the past that dynamic groups are kind of like SharePoint audiences, except they're real security groups, um, just compiled on the fly, real time, which is excellent and great. And, and so you get some really interesting functionality if you're uh, if, if you have access to some of those latest and greatest SKUs and, and you pay a little bit more for them. Uh, yes, the Azure AD Premium Banana Stand. Um, I think it is, you know, one thing to be mindful of, though, and maybe maybe we don't deal with this as much in that cloud environment. Um, but at least with on-premises SharePoint, you still run into that problem of uh, your Kerberos ticket can only have so many security groups associated with it. Um, so, you know, using security, AD security groups and trying to map those back to your SharePoint groups sometimes can be a nightmare when all of a sudden the user says, hey, I can't access that. You look at their uh, AD user object and you say, well, that's weird. You're part of the group. Um, and it ends up just being one of those things where they're part of so many groups that their Kerberos ticket can't handle it. Mm-hmm. So, so there's weird things that happen with, you know, you mentioned on the front end that we've got limits on the number of uh, ACLs that can be applied to, uh, items or objects, so you know a particular list item or a list holistically or a web or a site or anything else, and then you've got all these other things around. Uh, you know, you don't want to embed groups past so many levels, and you don't want to use that top level group because it has X embedded underneath it, and um, all, all the other things. So it all goes back to this stuff is hard, and you got to write it down up front and plan it out a little bit and have an idea of how your security model is going to integrate with things like your information architecture and how that's all going to flow and uh, present itself to your users so that everybody isn't getting an access denied page or calling you up and saying, what's going on? You know, in the case of those users with too many groups, they don't know that. Like, that, that's not something that they have any insight into or what's going on. They just think the system's broken. And... Uh, you know, unfortunately, the system is broken because somebody had some poor design insights on the front end. So you tend to call um, the end users normals. Uh, I tend to refer to them as muggles, but... I tend to call the normals normals. Uh, well, um, yeah, so the, the muggles are the normals. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate they're the ones that tend to suffer. Um, while we'd like them to learn and understand how to do this, it isn't their job to... So. Maybe at some point, Office 365 and SharePoint uh, will have something that's just more intuitive. One can always hope. True, one can. Um, so the uh, I guess we're, we're running up on time, but uh, one thing that I did want to bring to light um, that I, I bumped into earlier this week uh, was Azure's put together a new virtual machine pricing calculator. Uh, if you have messed around with AWS at all, um, you've probably found their simple calculator, which will build uh, kind of a snapshot of what uh, an environment is going to cost um, based on different criteria and parameters that you set. So, you know, how many hard drives, uh, how much storage, um, what kind of networking, things along those lines, how many cores, how much memory. 
Uh, so Microsoft has gone and built something very similar. Uh, I know in the past we had talked about the pricing calculator that existed uh, for Microsoft's, you know, just Azure services in general. And while it gave you an answer, it was a one-off answer. So it would be like, how much is a virtual machine going to cost in uh, Sydney's data center? And you change the drop down to Sydney, and then it would say, and here's what the prices are for blah, 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 blah. So you'd still have to go through and build your own spreadsheet with the prices and kind of figure that out. Well, while it's not perfect, um, Microsoft does have their calculator. Uh, it's kind of cute if you go to the actual main page for it. It has a little scientific looking calculator with the word 07734, aka hello. Um, so if you go out to the calculator, you can go in, you can choose, uh, you know, which um, which uh, virtual machines you're using from a type aspect, um, what zone they sit in, like what bandwidth are they going to use. And then you can actually add additional virtual machines, bandwidth storage, and app services to it. Um, so it gives you that aggregate. You don't necessarily have to go through and build out your own spreadsheet to do this. Kind of a neat little thing. Uh, I am not putting all, any of my eggs in the basket yet, um, only because I think probably, uh, I don't know, I just, I think, you know, iteration-wise, uh, this has still got a ways to go before it's really going to be something that I can go use uh, easily um, to build out uh, cost estimates. Yeah, so, so you mentioned comparing it to Amazon's simple pricing calculator, and it really doesn't compare at all. So Amazon's calculator takes a bunch of things into account that Azure traditionally hasn't. So uh, some upfront things like TCO. So Amazon's very transparent in when you go and use their pricing calculators that uh, when they spit out a final number, you know you can actually go in and include numbers from like the TCO calculator and figure out how that's going to align to like a new deployment. Uh, the other nice thing with the Amazon calculator is I can go and create a link and I can say, Hey Dan, here's a link to my estimate and what I configured. You want to go take a look at that? Maybe shoot me a link back and you can actually kind of work across or, or between different parties to come up with a number and then you can export it as a PDF and you can save it. And it is all very nice and pretty. The Azure calculator on the other hand is just a web page. And while that web page is very pretty, it takes up lots of space and does lots of things and it really doesn't spit anything out at the end. So I think a lot of folks are still going to be uh, building spreadsheets and, and, and trying to figure out what goes on. Um, I, you know, I see some of this stuff as, as a bit of a, a disconnect between what some of the other teams are doing. So I don't know. Have you ever seen the, uh, the Azure cost estimator? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. I don't know. That's a good question. So, so the cost estimator is tooling that you can run on premises. So, uh, say you're looking at doing a lift and shift deployment, right? So, uh, you've got a bunch of these, uh, servers that you want to get out to the cloud. You've determined that they are suitable for cloudy workloads. So the cost estimator is some tooling that you install on premises and it goes ahead and it supports a, a bunch of things. It supports uh, Hyper-V and System Center and VMware and physical boxes that are Windows and Linux. Um, and it can actually go ahead and tell you like what exists. It, it'll go out, go out into your environment and take a look with a scan tool. 
and it'll say, here's all the things that exist. And it can actually spit back like a little spreadsheet that says, here's what's going on. Here's what we think your pricing would be and everything else. So it'd be really helpful to be able to run like a tool like that and take that output and then go move it over to the Azure calculator and get the most up-to-date pricing across multiple regions and all the other things that are going on. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to be kind of a little bit of an, an expert to figure some of this stuff out. I, I tend to fall in the camp of pricing cloud solutions is really, really hard. And it's even harder to push across if you're going with organizations that are making that CapEx, OpEx transition and, and trying to figure out what it means to go over to monthly spend. And you can't always nail down monthly spend. You can say, well... Uh, you know, by our best estimate, uh, you are going to spend $1,000 this month or or $1,000 a month for the next six months. And then it turns out you turn it on and like month one, they spend $1,500 and then month two, they spend like $1,250 and then month three, they spend $1,000 and then month four, five, and six, they spend, you know, between $500 and $750 or something. And at the end of the day, it averaged out to be $1,000 a month across six months. But you didn't know that up front because it was really hard to do those pricing. So, um, you know, I think there's a couple things. So it'd be nice if they integrated the tooling and we could figure things out and export and spreadsheets and play around with things and um, help out on the sales side a little bit more, whether that's selling to a client or internal sales or, you know, you're just trying to figure this stuff out as a consumer. And then they could have better tooling, like things like the cost estimator only give you costs uh, for U.S. Azure services. So you'd still have to go back and figure out all the other stuff on your own. Say you wanted to price out Europe or Asia or something like that. I guess, yeah. I mean, from a calculator perspective, you're totally spot on. Uh, the AWS stuff blows out of the water. Uh, the Azure simple calculator or preview calculator, as we'll call it, um, is what it is. I mean, it's, it's a nice graphical interface right now. Uh, they do have a little feedback button on it. So if you click on feedback, you can send them feedback that basically says, hey, uh, it would be great if you could export this stuff. So I actually just did that right now. But um, something else to keep in mind is if you are uh, looking for that tool, that cost estimator, um, you do have to have a Windows device to be able to operate it. So it is not just like a spreadsheet like they had for like uh, the OneDrive for Business uh, data estimation um, tool. It is a full-up application you have to download. It's an MSI, so hopefully you've got admin rights on your machine to be able to install it. Um, again, like you mentioned, very helpful tool. Uh, I, am, I am totally with you on... Uh, cost estimations for environments. Um, if it's something simple, and by simple I mean like, hey, we've got a IIS-based website that we want to operate, and we want to still be able to install these other pieces and components, um, and we want to do patch management, so we're just going to run a VM to do it. Uh, if we know the cost of that VM, and we know we're going to have four VMs like it, um, that's fairly easy to cost out, uh, especially if we're going through kind of the mindset of uh, folks aren't going to be hitting this except for the production one, and we know how many folks are going to be hitting it and on what basis, and we know they're not ever going to have a spike because it's something asinine that would never really have a spike. Um, but otherwise, you're right. I mean, if I try and go and 
price something out and tell someone here's exactly what the cost is going to be, uh, I'm probably going to miss the mark because it's not it's not easy to go out and you know determine just how much storage users are going to use, how much uh, time users are going to have to interact with a system that's hosted in Azure AWS. Um, it's you know kind of a it's one of those things where I almost wish we could take the data set from operational insights or application insights or mobile uh, engagement tools and dump that into a Hadoop cluster and see what insights it can come up with so that we can better learn how to price things. You can your Hadoop cluster is called Excel and you just dump the data over. I you know um, it, it, it's tough right because. You know, I think it's really easy to be critical of this stuff on the front end, and and but they're trying and they're building it. I, I just see, you know, there, there'd be a lot of nice things that they could do along the way, right? If I go into this uh, this calculator and I'm pricing out some VMs and things like that, and I get to the point where I'm like, well, your calculator here doesn't tell me what I need, so oh, cool, there's this link that says access the full calculator, so. If I had all this work on the page and I did everything and then I go ahead and hop over to the full calculator, I have to start doing my calculations all again because the full calculator didn't carry uh, the data over that I had and and uh, those kind of things. So it can be it can be a little stressful to do some of this stuff. Um, and then part of the problem too is like that, or one of the nice things I guess would be that that calculator, that nice little simple one, it actually lets you price across different regions within the same calculation set. So that's nice. I want to see one currency, but maybe I, I want to see everything in U.S. dollars. But I am going to deploy across uh, Asia, uh, Europe, and the U.S. So I want to price across all those data centers and uh, those regions. Awesome, you can do that. And then again, you click over to the full calculator, and oh yeah, by the way, the full calculator uh, doesn't include any variations by region, so you've still got to go ahead and um, then that takes you over to the uh, you know the pricing pages for each and every region, where then you actually have to go into detailed pricing for uh, the service you're looking for. So I'm looking for something like compute, like virtual machines. Um, by the way, and then all of a sudden I have lost access to that original pricing calculator, which I can no longer find anymore because I've clicked seven times and there is no way back to it. So that uh, what you talk about is the – well, actually, there, there is a way back to it. Uh, if you were on the preview calculator and you clicked on access the full calculator, um, if you drill into a certain area – so if you want to like virtual machines, uh, at the very top of the virtual machines page, it actually says, try out the new calculator. Um, uh, the problem I have with the full calculator is that you're not actually getting an aggregate cost. Right. Well, but again, it's also the full calculator is really pretty much like U.S. East pricing. Well, yeah. I, I, Which tends to be the nicest. So. It's a little disingenuous. I, again, this is about increasing consumption and making it easier to consume. So sure, let's show the cheapest price up front and everything else, and let's hope that there's some hidden things along the way. But yeah, it, it's it's hard. Um, you, you know, maybe next week we can spend some time talking about cloud pricing and increases and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that never happens anywhere. Nope. Teaser. 
Um, what else do we want to wrap with? I think that's about it, man. Uh, you know, I think you're right. All this other stuff's going to take too long. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing to say is if you're running Visual Studio Code, uh, go into Visual Studio Code, tell it to update. If you have the original build, go download the update and basically replace Visual Studio Code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah have, I think you have to be up to 0.5, which is the latest version, to be able to use the auto-updater from here on out. So I, that means you need to do the, like if you're on OS X, do the drag and drop thing and just overwrite it. Was there a version between the original and .5? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. .2, oh. .3, .4, and .5. Somehow I missed those. That's because there was no auto-updater. Mm, <laughs> clever. Now you have the auto-updater. Well, I mean, the updater was there, but it would basically tell you, sorry, this doesn't support auto-update. Mm, yeah. It was it, it basically useless on OS X. So yeah. being that that's your platform of choice these days. so. Uh, but yeah, 0.5 is out, and they have some... Uh, nice things in there. Like they've made uh, some, they've had some nice Git enhancements. So they've done some work around credential entry and prompting for credentials and uh, some auto fetch stuff. And uh, they added snippets. So that was nice. And they added a bunch of built in snippets for things like Docker files and Python and, um, you know, Fun, fun stuff like that. Ooh, and uh, uh, for you know those security conscious folks like you, they added proxy support, which was good. Well, everybody needs a good proxy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only other thing I can think of is uh, if you happen to be in Northern Virginia and you're interested in grabbing a pint with Scott and Dan, uh, just kick us up over email or Twitter or something, and uh, we'll make it happen. Absolutely. Uh, anybody can always hit us up at info at brewery.fm. Or they can just tweet us and tell us they want to buy us beverages. I thought we were buying them beverages. They can get the first round.